Well, our scripture reading this morning will be from the book of Ephesians, chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. And there we find that the Apostle Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he writes, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to be one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and the Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of faith, of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, that is, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Well, good morning to all of you. I invite you to turn with me to Psalm 24. We will get to... Ephesians 4 in just a little bit, but let's go first to Psalm 24, and I want to read a few verses in just a moment from that, and we'll look at another psalm that Paul quotes in our passage today. We're going to look today at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 through 10, and talk about the victorious gift giver, and obviously that's the Lord Jesus Christ, the victorious gift giver. The Old Testament gives us a number of pictures that describe Yahweh as a king who is mighty in battle. He is victorious in those battles. And as he is victorious, he is generous to his people. One example is Psalm 24. Here, David pictures the Lord returning victorious from battle, coming back to Jerusalem and into his sanctuary. So I'd like to read the last few verses of Psalm 24, beginning verse 7. David here, as the Lord, as he, and of course, you know, he's he's picturing spiritually what is happening. You know, this is the reality, the spiritual reality of what is happening. But as David and his men are coming back from battle, it's really the Lord who is the one that was victorious and he worked through them. And so as they approach the gates of the city, He cries out, Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? Yahweh, strong and mighty. Yahweh, mighty in battle. 
Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. If you would turn to Psalm 68, a psalm that Paul is going to quote, This is another example where David is picturing God, portraying God as this victorious warrior king who has just defeated his enemies and he's leading his people triumphantly. He talks about different occasions briefly. He talks about how the Lord led his people through the wilderness. Psalm 68, he pictures... The Lord, God, leading His people through the wilderness. He pictures God triumphantly enabling His people to conquer the promised land. And then David comes to the point of of why he wrote this psalm, Psalm 68, that the Lord led them victoriously to conquer Jerusalem. And so now if we go ahead and go to the the picture and uh, say, now you can feast on that all you want. This, this is a picture of a model. Okay, so this is not the real thing. It's a picture, and it's a, not even a picture of the real thing. It's a picture of the model. It's in Jerusalem, or in near Jerusalem, actually. But what it is, what you're looking at here is a portion of the city, a model of the city of Jerusalem. And this is actually in Paul's day, because uh, I don't know of a model of one from David's day. But uh, And so on the left-hand side, you can see there's, there's going to be a lot of houses and businesses and things like that. And, uh, and then the, and there's an arrow. On the right side of the arrow is what I want to draw your attention to first. That is known as the city of David. That that It goes kind of north and south there. That long, fortress-looking uh, walls and buildings and all that. Okay, so just on the right-hand side of that arrow is the city of David. Okay, That had been a Jebusite fortress. And... Even though Joshua led the people into the land and they conquered much of the land, and then they, after that, conquered more and more, in David's day, they had not captured Jerusalem. It was still, it still belonged to their enemies, the Jebusites. And it was quite a fortress. And as you can kind of tell from this, uh, on the right-hand side, you can see all the way to the right of that picture, it, it slopes way down. There's a wall, and then it slopes way down. It drops off into a deep ravine, okay? And and so, and if you go further to the right, you would you would have the Mount of Olives. So, and it runs along on the east side of that. So, just so you kind of get in your head where it's at. The very top of the picture is a, a model of the temple, the temple in Paul's day, okay? In Jesus' day and Paul's day, okay? That wasn't there when what I'm describing to you. It was just a bare mountain, basically, okay? Uh, the Mount Moriah. So, David was used by God, David and his men, to finally penetrate that fortress and overthrow it, to conquer it. And, of course, that became David's city, the city of David. And then, above the city of David, appropriately, would be Mount Moriah, and it's where Abraham had plan to offer up Isaac and you know so and that's where the temple would end up being built and in this model you can see that's where the temple is okay what David is picturing here in Psalm 68 is how the Lord was marching up starting at the bottom of where that arrow is and, and marching upward 
through the city of David, conquering the city of David, or what's now the city of David, the Jebusite fortress, conquering it and then marching on up to where eventually would be his dwelling place. And with the tabernacle and then the temple, uh, eventually it's going to take a while before they get there. But that's what he's picturing here. And so what David is saying throughout this psalm basically is that as King God marched into Jerusalem, leading a host of enemy soldiers that he had captured, God continued his march up his holy mountain and into his sanctuary, receiving tributes from kings and then giving gifts to his people. And I want to show you some things that connect Psalm 68 with Ephesians 4 that we're going to look at today. And what were probably things going on or that were clicking in the mind of Paul as he's writing this and why he would end up quoting it. So, remember we said last time, at the very end of verse 6, Ephesians 4, 6, that, that God is a Father of us all. He's one. We have one God and Father of all. I'm talking about believers. That most likely took his mind to Psalm 68. So if you look Psalm 68, verse 5, he calls God a Father of the fatherless. Okay, so there's a connection, a mental connection there. And then, remember that Paul taught in Ephesians 2 and 3 about how we are being built into this dwelling place for God. And then we saw at the end of chapter 4, verse 6, the last thing he said there is that in all, that this God and Father is in all. In other words, still talking about believers, He is in all of us. And so that idea of His dwelling would likely take Paul's mind there at the end of verse 5, after a father of the fatherless, God in his holy habitation. So as Paul is writing Ephesians 2, 3, and 4, these are things clicking in his mind. And then to set us up to understand what uh, is, a, is a source of a lot of um, scholarly contention, um, I want to point out a, a few things. So Psalm 68 uh, one theme throughout is that God gives to His people. He's a giver of gifts. Okay, a couple of things that are where it's real clear. Uh, it's it's there as a theme throughout, and and you can go through. And one commentator developed all of this, but I don't want to go into all that. Um, we don't, don't think we need to. But in verse six, there in Psalm sixty-eight, after God makes a home for the lonely. It says, he leads out the prisoners into prosperity. So, those who had been prisoners prior are freed now by God, and he leads them into prosperity. In other words, as this, you have the spoils of war, but then later in the psalm, he's going to talk about how kings bring their tribute, area kings bring their tribute to God, this conquering king. God then gives gifts to his people because he's a generous God. That's what God does. Okay, then slide down in your, with your eyes to verse 12. Kings of armies flee, they flee. And she who remains at home, in other words, the women who didn't go out to war, which they didn't in those days, she who remains at home will divide the spoil. So God will even those who weren't the warriors that he was using, they are going to be blessed. How? By God giving gifts. He's going to divide up the spoils of war. He's going to divide up even the, the tribute that is brought to him 
from other kings, and he's going to give that to his people. That so the, the idea in Psalm sixty-eight, or one big idea there, is that God gave gifts to his people. All of that fits very well with what Paul wants to say next in Ephesians four. And so what he's going to do is he's going to quote Psalm sixty-eight, verse eighteen, or I should say loosely quote. Now, there are a lot of different things we could talk about in the commentary sections. You know, it's kind of like, oh my, I'm going to be in this for a while. Because they, they go through, well, so-and-so said this, and they're wrong. And so other person said this, and they're wrong. And, you know, here's all the 27 reasons why I'm right, and that kind of thing. So, uh, I'm going to spare you all of that. You're welcome. Um, I went through it. Okay, I always do. <laughs> That's my job. But I'll spare you, and I'll give you the short version. Okay. I know that's hard to believe, right? Me giving you a short version. But Psalm 68, verse 18. Follow with me there. He says, You have, talking to God, you have ascended on high. There, Remember, there's that, he's, he's marching up through the city of David and then to the top of Mount Moriah, uh, where eventually the, the temple would be. You have led captive your captives. You have received gifts among men. Even among the rebellious also that Yahweh God may dwell there. Okay, so Paul quotes part of that and he changes it up a bit. What David saw God do in his day, Paul is saying, I've seen Jesus do in my day. That's what he's getting at. That's why he quotes Psalm 68. Okay, and we're going to develop this that you'll be able to see what's going on. Basically this, Christ ascended victoriously to his sanctuary and he gave gifts to his people. So Paul is getting ready to talk about spiritual gifts. He knows he needs to talk about spiritual gifts as to how are we to walk in unity. This whole Ephesians 4, 1 through 16, how do we walk in unity? Well, we're going to need spiritual gifts in order to do that. And so Paul is getting ready to talk about spiritual gifts. But his mind, remember, all these connections with Psalm 68, and he keeps going back there because he says, what, Yahweh, what David saw Yahweh do, I saw Jesus do in our day and am seeing him do. Now, as I was telling you that, you may have wondered, what do spiritual gifts have to do with unity? Unity in the church. Okay? And it may be a little bit surprising, we'll see. But our main point is is this. As the victorious giver of spiritual gifts, that is Jesus, as the victorious giver of spiritual gifts, Christ has provided for us to diligently preserve unity. Through these spiritual gifts, Christ has provided for us to diligently preserve unity. And you remember that was how he started out chapter 4. So uh, you can go ahead and go on over to Ephesians 4. We're going to be there for the rest of our time. So, you remember that he gave us that call in those first few verses. Verse 3 in particular, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. How are we going to do that? Spiritual gifts. That is a key part of his answer. Spiritual gifts are essential tools that Christ uses to grow us so that we will be skillful 
and motivated to preserve unity with one another. Because we, even as believers in Jesus Christ, we don't come, we're not born with or even reborn with the skills to be able to preserve unity. We need to be given those skills. And so he does that by giving us spiritual gifts and he grows us in our ability to use them well. But also, in those spiritual gifts, we that's part of what you know, Hebrews 10 talks about uh, why we have to assemble together so that we can stimulate one another to love and good deeds. We're using our spiritual gifts to prod one another, in part, to work toward unity. You see, so as we um, exercise our gifts. God doesn't just say, okay, I saved you, now go do the work. A lot of Christians present the Christian life that way. That is not at all what you find in Scripture. Okay, God doesn't do that. He just says, okay, you're on your own now, just go do it. He provides spiritual resources so that we can be used by Him. So you see, still, God is the one who's actually accomplishing these works in us, the work of preserving unity. But He uses us, and He does that by giving us these spiritual resources called spiritual gifts in order to preserve our unity. And so, Ephesians 4, verses 7 through 16, tell us how he does that. So let's talk about uh, where we're at in Ephesians and get an idea, looking at the outline here. So, in this section of Ephesians, Paul calls us to walk in unity, chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. And to do that, he uses three exhortations. We've already looked at the first two. There's an exhortation to live equal to your calling. And then we saw last time an exhortation to unity and a ba- and the basis for unity. Remember that basis? What was the basis for that unity? It was the character and work of the Trinity, right? Where he develops that. And he goes through Spirit, Son, and Father in, in verses 4 through 6. Okay. And now we're going to begin this third exhortation. An exhortation to grow together toward unity of the Spirit. A phrase that he's going to be using a little bit later in this section. To grow together toward unity of the faith. And so, let's take that third exhortation now. We're going, to, we're going to expand it and break it down first. Christ gives spiritual gifts to each believer in the church. Verses 7 through 10. And that's our passage for today. Christ gives spiritual gifts to each believer in the church. Now, as we've said before... Unity does not mean uniformity. You might think about, oh, there are a lot of schools out there. That what they will do is they will uh, have an approved uniform and all the kids have to wear the approved uniform. Why? Well, there's different reasons, but basically they don't want diversity of clothing because it, there, there's a lot of different reasons why they don't want that. But the whole point is, is they want uniformity. That's why we call it a uniform, okay? Because they're all their dress code is uniform. Okay? That's not unity. That is not biblical unity. I know a lot of times we tend to lean that way. And we kind of you know, want everybody to be like us, you know, and even we leaders can, you know, want people to be like us. And, and now as far as we're like Christ, that's a good thing. But in, you know, other things, just personality differences and stuff like that, that's not, we don't, we don't want uniformity. Rather, Unity is harmony. And what is harmony? It reflects agreement in primary matters. Okay, that's important. It's agreement in primary matters. 
matters like goals. So we all should have the same goal or goals as a church. That's one of the reasons we're going through Ephesians. To know what should our goal be? What is our job? What are we supposed to be doing? What are we supposed to accomplish? Okay. Another is it would be ethical standards. In other words, the law of Christ. The things that we're supposed to be obeying. The character traits that we're supposed to be developing and helping develop in one another. And then core beliefs, doctrine. Okay, I mean core. Okay, these are primary doctrines. Okay, in primary doctrines, the fundamentals of the faith, we have to be, and in that, we have to be uniform. Okay, we have to agree on that. You know, if you don't believe that Christ is God, we have a serious problem, and we can't be unified. If you hold to that, you and I cannot be unified. Okay, but we can hold to different views of eschatology, for example. And we might have some different views in ecclesiology, and we can still be unified. I can have a unity, a level of unity with my brother or sister in Christ who is a, they, they baptize infants, okay? And and so we, we can have that. I can benefit from them and they from me, and we can encourage each other in the Lord. But those are secondary matters. So core beliefs, that's something we have to have agreement, and that's where harmony will come from. That is unity. Now, if unity means harmony, it might seem surprising that at this point, Paul introduces diversity. Okay, now this is going to be a problem. Because you're spending all this time, Paul, talking about unity, because that's what verses 1 through 16 are about. We're walking unity, and now you're going to introduce a problem, diversity, okay? But we have to understand that Christ uses a diversity of spiritual gifts to preserve and grow unity in churches. He's going to use the diversity of spiritual gifts to preserve and grow unity in churches. And one of the things, I'll probably maybe talk about this more next time, but there are some areas of, of Christianity where they say that we all have to have a particular gift. And every Christian should have that gift. Well, that goes against everything that the, the, the gift passages talk about, especially this one. And the point of what he's trying to drive home here is the diversity of gifts. Okay, And Paul actually will say in First Corinthians, for example, not all of us have this, not all of us have that, right? <clears throat> rhetorical questions we should answer right so as we break this down now verses 7 through 10 first we want to say christ gives a diversity of gifts to cultivate unity verse 7 christ gives a diversity of gifts to cultivate unity and i want to read the first seven verses and we'll jump into the text I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing forbearance to one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were also called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. But, There he's introducing this trouble. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. 
Paul moved from the unified term all, there in verse 6, to the individual now in verse 7. And he's, what he's saying is that Jesus distributes spiritual gifts freely and as He wills. He says He distributes them to each one of us. We're going to learn that there is a diversity, there are, a, a, there are various spiritual gifts. But it is the diversity of gifts that God uses to produce unity. We are to be unified, but we are not identical. We're not supposed to be identical. Okay? We are to be unified. We are not to be uniform. We have equal value in Christ, but we have different jobs. Okay? That's the idea that we're working with here. That's the idea of unity. Now, let's talk about this idea of diversity that he's introduced. Businesses and organizations are focused right now these days on diversity, okay? In the church, God does put people together from different, with different uh, or differences. And we're going to talk about that here in a second. But I want to talk for a minute, you don't have to turn there, about Galatians 3. Because what Paul does there is a similar thing, but he does it in a different way. He first says that you are all sons, okay? doesn't say sons and daughters, and it's unfortunate when they introduce it that way because he's making a point. In Paul's mind, he's using the term, the, the, the idea of a Roman son, somebody who has all the rights and privileges handed to them by the father, the Roman citizen father. And instead of saying, okay, well, yeah, the, you know, the boys are going to get this, which is the way that worked, and the other sons, not as much. And then the daughters, not really. He said, no, all of you, men and women, saved boys and girls alike, are all sons. Okay? You're all elevated to that highest point of son. Okay? Then he says that you are all baptized into Christ. So, with that, he recognizes that, yes, God does put in the church, put people together from different ethnic backgrounds... But ethnic differences are not what cultivate unity. He says there's neither Jew nor Greek. Okay? So, while those are there, those differences are there, and he recognizes them, and we're going to talk more about that, that's not how you get to unity. Okay? God puts together people from different economic categories. But economic differences are not what produce unity. He says, there's neither slave nor free. God does put together people from the, the two different sexes. Okay, I, I, okay, I, this is, this, I'm on my soapbox here, okay? The term applied to people is sexes, not genders, okay? And that's bugged me for a long time because gender is a term for for. It's a grammatical term, okay? And and so it applies to words. It doesn't apply to people. But, and, but I know we get creeped out with the term sex and say, oh, you know, say that, you know, because you're like a fourth grader, right? <clears throat> and we don't want to use that term, so we, we adopted the term gender. Well, now we've got a big mess on our hands, don't we? So we to use the word that is the right word, okay? Words have gender, okay? 
with humans, we have sexes, okay? And there are two. God puts together in the church people of the two different sexes, okay? To your surprise, look around, okay? And that's important because there are people out there, not many, fortunately. There are people out there who... I had a, a woman come to me when I worked at a Christian bookstore who said, you know, I... I grew up with this tradition in a church where this is what was taught. And I think it's true. And what she was taught was that only men actually become, can become Christians. Women can't. I'm like, I'd never heard anything like that. You know, and so I'm rattling off verses for it. I'm showing her in the Bible and say, well, what about this? You know, and this and this and this. So we need to understand God puts together in his church people from both Sexes. Okay, now I'll get off my soapbox. Galatians 3, he says, there is neither male nor female. That's not what cultivates unity. And it's not the fact that we, you know, because we, you know, we shouldn't say like businesses tend to say, well, you know, if we have men and women, then that'll promote unity. No, because they're sinners, and I'm sorry, that's not going to work. That's not what promotes unity. It's something else. And so he he says, he declares that you, in Galatians 3.28, you are all one in Christ Jesus. No matter what any of these differences we've been talking about, and if you can think of other differences, you know, short and tall and whatever, it doesn't matter. God puts all of those together in the church because he has declared us to be sons, all of us sons. And he's baptized all of us into Christ. And he says, so therefore you are all one in Christ. You see, it's the fact that we are in Christ that we have the ability to be one with one another. Okay? So we rightly rejoice how God puts together in His church people with all sorts of differences. But those differences are not what cultivate unity. It's the diversity, or the diversity that cultivates unity in the church is the diversity of spiritual gifts. And so here, while he's talking about unity, and he says, he starts this section off with the word, but. You're like, uh-oh. Yeah, because to get to Preserving unity, he's already worked unity in us, remember. But to preserve that, we need a diversity. And the diversity we need is the diversity of spiritual gifts. So it's a beautiful thing when God puts together all of us who are so different in many different ways. But when it comes to spiritual gifts, we're all going to be different, okay? And you're, we'll see that you're going to be different even if you have the same spiritual gift as someone else. Now, we're going to take time next week to talk about spiritual gifts. And what I'm going to do, you know, as I've been doing through Ephesians, is we'll, we'll kind of stop and camp on for a lesson or two uh, a particular either doctrine or teaching of Scripture like we did with regeneration and redemption and things like that. We're going to do that next week with spiritual gifts. We're going to go in and talk a lot more about spiritual gifts. We're going to look at Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12. We'll touch a little bit here on Ephesians 4 and then also in 1 Peter 5 when he talks about these different passages that talk about spiritual gifts. And we're going to talk about what they are, what they're not. 
because that will prepare us for the next section when, it, when he starts talking about specific gifts. Okay, so we're going to talk about those next time, Lord willing. So, What we need to know now in this lesson is that these gifts are gifts of grace to us from Christ. They're not something that we earned. You know, we don't say, well, you know, because of, you know, all that I've done, or as, as good as I am, God blessed me with this gift. And we can't say that. We don't earn them. We don't deserve those gifts. We don't even earn the measure in which they're given. So you might have this spiritual gift and somebody else might have the same spiritual gift. But you get them in different measures. And he said, that's what he says here. It's according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, on the one hand, the idea is that he gives generously to his church and to his people. But there's also this idea that as, you know, you have somebody who has, you know, a gift of teaching and, and they use it in this particular way. They have this, you know, size church. And then there may be somebody else that has this, you know, huge church and God uses them and, and he gives them a greater measure of that gift. Same with giving. Some people, they're like the, the widow who you know, just gave her own two coins. That's all she had. She had the gift of giving. Okay? Now, could she compare with a believer of our day who maybe is a millionaire and they're able to write big checks to help out churches and, and you know, the work of Christ and, you know, ministries? They just have a... They both have the gift of giving, but... Christ gave that gift to them in different measure, okay? And that's that's his prerogative, how he sovereignly wants to do it. So Christ determines both what gifts are given and to whom and in what amount, according to the measure. It's his, it's his measure. Christ has sovereignly determined what giftedness you will have he has also ordained what all he plans to accomplish through your gift. You see? So, you know, I know a lot of times when you think about it, uh, when you first study the spiritual gifts, and, you know, used to they, were, they would try to tie these um, back when I was probably in the 20s, my 20s, a long, long time ago. Um, they would tie this with, you know, uh, personality, you know, tests and stuff. And, they, you know, to see, okay, that, that's the gift that you have. And that was completely wrong. And sometimes people would just like, okay, here's a list. Pick the ones you would like to be and do. No, they don't do it that way either. Christ gives you. He decides what you're going to get. How do you know? Well, you start, you just start serving and see how he uses you. And as the church recognizes, like, wow, okay, I learned something from you. Okay, well, maybe I have the gift of teaching. Wow, I was helped by that gift. Okay, maybe I have the gift of giving. You see, that's how, and we'll do that, develop that more next time, but... Christ sovereignly determines these things. He also determines what He plans to accomplish through you, through your gifts. And, and we'll talk next time about whether you get one gift or more than one gift or what. So we'll, we'll deal with that next time. But right now He's talking about at least in this idea of what He what He will give to you. It, it might be one gift, but it's basically a package, and it might be a, a you know several gifts, a unique mix of gifts. Okay. That's what he's talking about here is what Christ gives to each person. So he sovereignly measures out to each believer the grace that they're going to need to serve their church. Each church member has a particular function within their local church. Okay, 
you each have, you know, and you may think, well, you know, I'm not one of the paid ministers, or I'm not an elder or a deacon, or I'm not one of the women's, you know, teachers or women's council or, you know, on this committee or that or what. Each one of us has a particular function within our local church. And that's how Christ determines what gift. He looks at, and again, we'll talk about this more, but he looks at what does the church need. And so as he adds to our body, the beautiful thing is, and I always, you know, think about, it, okay, I wonder how God's going to use them. What is What need is he meeting by adding them to our church? And so as you're joining the church, that's, you know, you ought to think, you know, what... It's exciting. What need is this, does this church have that Christ is meeting by adding me? And that's humbling. At least it should be. Okay, second. The Old Testament portrayed God as a victorious king who gives gifts to his people. The Old Testament portrayed God as a victorious king who gives gifts to his people. And here in Ephesians 4, 8. Therefore, after talking about Christ giving gifts, therefore it says, when he, Christ, ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. So he's quoting here from Psalm 68, 18. Again, as I said, he's quoting loosely. And he's writing, David wrote that to celebrate God's victory in gaining control of Jerusalem. And he, he talks about some of the other things, as I mentioned, but it's, in, it's particularly focused on that, when he gained control of Jerusalem. So... What David is picturing, again, for us is that as he and his army, they get into the Jebusite stronghold there. And then as they make their way up the city of David and you're climbing up the mountain, uh, what he pictures there is that this is Yahweh. He's working through them. And so the spiritual reality of what's going on here is that Yahweh himself is marching up through the city of David or what became the city of David through that Jebusite stronghold all the way up to and then to Mount Moriah, where he, in David's day, is letting them know, basically, that's where my footstool is going to be. That's where my temple is going to be. And it wasn't there yet, but it will get there. Okay. That is what David is portraying in Psalm 68. So, God is ascending uh, this Mount Zion, the broader mountain area there, up to what what I've called here, or referred to as Mount Moriah, where the temple will be built. God is ascending up that. And so, Paul basically is saying that Old Testament scene pictured what Christ later accomplished in His death and resurrection and ascension. You see, what David saw, I see Christ doing. That's what Christ, as this victorious King, has accomplished. As Jesus died and and then rose again, He conquered death and the powers of darkness. And He ascended victoriously to His throne in heaven. And so Jesus there, coming down from heaven, and then after 33 years, He's put to death, He's buried in a grave, looks hopeless. But then He rises again. And then He ascends back to heaven. And then there from His throne, He's distributing gifts to His people. Spiritual gifts that He has earned for us through His victory. So just as God in the Old Testament was... He had the the spoils of war, but then He also had other kings bringing Him tribute. And He takes that and He gives that to His people. Same thing Paul says. That's what Jesus did. But these are spiritual gifts. Now, 
Paul actually made a number of changes uh, in the way he quoted this. You may have noticed it from Psalm 68, 18. But one significant change has caused the most grief. Psalm 68, David said that God received gifts among men. Paul wrote, he gave gifts to men. Well, that, that's a big change. Received and given, okay? And, and that, as one commentator said, you know, you know, so much scholarly ink has been spilled over this. Um, and that's true. How do you reconcile that? Well, I think the best explanation is this. As I explained earlier, a theme of Psalm 68 is God conquering and, and having these spoils of war and these tributes and then giving. Okay, And throughout the psalm, in various ways, it talks about God giving. And some of those more subtle than others, but that's, the, that's a big theme of Him giving. And that's probably one of the key things that took Paul's mind back to Psalm 68. And so when Paul referred to Psalm 68.18, he loosely quoted it. He didn't fulfill... He's not saying Christ fulfilled this as a prophecy. It wasn't a prophecy. I don't believe that it was a prophecy. Uh, he's saying that what was true of God in the Old Testament is true of Jesus in the New Testament because God, Jesus is God. He's, keep, he's true to His character. That's what He was like in the Old Testament. That's what He's like now in the New. That is what Paul is trying to say here. <clears throat> and so, he, he's quoting from Psalm 68, and he talks about how God ascended on high and He led captive a host of captives... But, but basically, he's, he's stopping there with his loose quotation. And instead of saying he received gifts from men, he then says, okay, and I'm going to talk about what the theme of this whole psalm is. He gave gifts. Because that's what my, why my mind went there. Okay? That's the, the short version, I think, and that's the way to understand this. So, he's saying when Jesus ascended in victory... In his resurrection and ascension, he gave gifts to his people in the church, just as God in the Old Testament, when he ascended there, the city of David and Mount Moriah, and gave gifts to his people. He's saying Jesus did basically the same thing. And, and so he's tying there Jesus in with the God of the Old Testament because he is the God of the Old Testament. Number three. Jesus fits, and this is kind of the point which brings it all together. Jesus fits that Old Testament description of victorious gift giver, verses 9 and 10. Jesus fits that Old Testament description of victorious gift giver, verse 9. Now, this expression, he ascended, what does it mean? Except that he had also, or he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth. So what he's saying is that, Jesus is God. That's what God does. He conquers and He gives gifts to His people. Okay? That's the point. That, that was the point of Psalm 68. God conquers and He gives gifts to His people. And Paul's saying, that's what I'm drawing on. That's why I refer to that. Because Jesus does the same thing. Again, when David overthrew the Jebusites, he conquered Jerusalem. He took captives from among the enemy. Likewise, when Jesus died and rose again, He defeated our enemies. Satan, sin, death. So there's a sense in which you know, he took them captive. He defeated them. And then having ascended to heaven as the triumphant king, Jesus then gave gifts to his people. 
So when he died and was buried and rose again, he was a victor over death, sin, Satan. And then he went to be back with his Father in heaven and from there gave gifts. What he's doing here in verses 9 and 10 is to elaborate on the verb he ascended in verse 8. There's two ideas he wants to elaborate on. He says, let me, let me first tell you about this, this ascended idea. That's verses 9 and 10. And then in a couple of weeks, we'll get to verse 11 and following. That's where he talks about gifts, the, the giving. Okay, And he's going to expand on that. Okay, But Paul's saying here in verse 9 that Christ... His ascending doesn't make sense unless he first descended. That I know it kind of throws us off. We read this; and it sounds unusual. But he says, "Okay, if I'm going to tell you about his ascending, I first have to make sure you understand that he descended. Because if he was already always in heaven and never came down to earth, then how could he ascend? He was already at the highest high, uh, place in heaven. So he said it, it doesn't make any sense. So I have to explain to you, as David did, even that he, he had to descend first, and then having descended, now he can ascend. Okay, and that's what he's trying to say here. What is he talking about when he says that he descended? Well, probably he has in mind when he was born of Mary, he took on human flesh. But then you say, okay, yeah, but John, what about that phrase, the lower parts of the earth, into the lower parts of the earth? What about that? Well, there's some people, and it's a popular idea that uh, it, it ties in, they think, with one way of understanding First Peter 3, which talks about Jesus, or at least some people say it's talking about Jesus going down into hell between his death and resurrection and preaching to the spirits there. Okay, we're not going to... Oh, I thought about opening that can of worms. I thought I might have trouble getting the lid back on, so we're gonna, not going to deal with that, so... <clears throat> Needless to say, that's not what Paul's talking about. So whatever Peter's talking about, Paul's not talking about that. Okay, because he, he, there are too many things that are different here in Ephesians 4. All he's doing is showing the fact that he descended. Okay, so he came from heaven to earth. And then when he talks about into the uh, lower, uh, as he said, into lower parts of the earth, it could mean into the lowliness of earth as, as related to heaven. So there's that distance there. That's one way to understand it. It might mean that he descended even a little bit further than that into the grave. Okay? Um, and so into the lowest, lowest parts of the earth. There's a lot of different ways you can understand that. Those are the two best ways of understanding it, I think. Um, and I tend to like the idea of him going into the grave partly because I think it fits the context really well. His uh, becoming taken on flesh isn't what Paul's talking about here. His death is what he's talking about. Okay, Because it's by, it is by his death. His death is a critical part of his victory over sin and over death and over Satan. Okay, So I think it, it talks about him descending to the earth and into the grave. Well, then he says that after his death and resurrection, he ascended far above the heavens, all the heavens. In other words, just taking the highest place in heaven. And from there, he works to fill all things. And that is by giving his church gifts. Exercising those gifts 
This is what he means, I think, by fill all things. Exercising those gifts, his church takes the knowledge of Christ throughout the world that it that the world might be filled with the preaching of his good news. So as we are exercising our spiritual gifts, the gospel goes out to around us, but also throughout the world. Okay? Paul calls on calls us to diligently preserve the unity that the Trinity has already accomplished among us. Christ's victory makes preserving our unity possible. We can't do it on our own. He doesn't say, okay, you're saved, now go do it. That won't work. He has to make it possible, and He has done that through His victory. He's defeated Satan, He's defeated sin, He's defeated death. And we need to remember that in His conquest, Jesus has provided all that we need to preserve and cultivate unity in our church. Jesus is the victorious giver of spiritual gifts. That's what He wants us to take away. We need to remember that and have the right orientation there as we go into this greater study of spiritual gifts themselves. Okay, So Jesus is the victorious giver of spiritual gifts. As we come to the Lord's table, I want us to focus on this. Jesus' burial in the grave was an essential part of the gospel, or it is an essential part of the gospel. Think 1 Corinthians 15, right? His having died and buried is part of the gospel. Okay? It's essential. He truly died and paid our penalty, and that's what descending into the lower parts into the grave represents. But it also shows how glorious was his victory. Because it wasn't, I mean, it would have been glorious enough for Jesus to come from heaven to earth, walk around, teach, you know, three years, and then go back to heaven. That'd be glorious enough. But he said, no, he died. He was buried. Meaning that everybody knew he was dead. And from there, death. He rose again. And he shows how glorious that ascension really is. And the fact that he is in heaven giving gifts to his church shows that he was not at all defeated. That he truly was victorious because that's what a victorious king does. That's what the victorious king of Psalm 68 did. God conquered through David Jerusalem and he gave gifts to his people. Jesus has conquered death, sin, Satan, and he now reigns victoriously. And victoriously gives us gifts.